take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians, but we are now ready to, over the next weeks, close out this series on Ephesians. And in some ways, you know, we think uh, about letters. A lot of times, I know in modern letters, you have kind of uh, the, the ending of the letter, it just kind of fades away. It just, it doesn't have the uh, same enthusiasm or the same uh, meaning at the end of the letter. You've been there, you're writing a letter, and boy, it's really something, and then you keep going, you kind of get bored with it yourself, you're tired of writing, you're trying to find a way to get out of this thing, and you write, and then even sometimes we give our closing, and we remember last second as we're folding it to put it in envelope, uh, P.S., you know, and then we write, you know, this forgotten part. And it's dangerous to do that in this letter of Ephesians. Ephesians doesn't close with a fizzle, it closes with a bang. And Paul has spent five chapters, and part of chapter six, building up, really, to the climax. This isn't the P.S., the addendum, the, oh yeah, I almost forgot, let me tell you about this spiritual warfare that's taking place. No, in most ways, everything he said for the beginning of the letter builds us to right at this point. He is calling us to the fact that we, as the children of God, as the heirs with Jesus Christ, the one who is the victor over all death, all sin, and Satan, and all of his dominion, we are enlisted in the army. We are soldiers. We are fighting. This is not the fizzle, the grand fizzle. This is the grand finale that Paul finishes with. A flurry of very important, in some ways the most important, of all of his instruction in Ephesians. Now, if you look at verse 10, where we're going to begin, you look, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. <clears throat> in the backdrop of this passage is an Old Testament passage, so if you'll hold your place in Ephesians chapter 6 and turn to Isaiah chapter 59, we find that Paul is quoting Paul didn't come up with the idea of a spiritual armor that guards and protects and defends us against the evil one. This is an idea that he picks up in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 59. If you look at verse 
beginning in verse 15, midway through the verse. Evil oppression is described in the first, chap, first part of chapter 59. The nation of, is being oppressed by evil. Peoples are around the world, around the globe, in, in, the right, in Isaiah's time, are being oppressed with injustice and with, with evil forces and with the secularism of their day. And look what it says in Isaiah 59, beginning in 15b. The Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought Him salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. Look at what it says. Verse 17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in, the, in zeal and that is always associated, zeal, in Old and New Testament, with the message of God, with the gospel of God. So he's being wrapped up in the zeal as, uh, as a covering, a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, the east. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The backdrop to the passage we're going to study over the next few weeks is Isaiah 59. And the importance of that is this. The ultimate victory in our lives has been won. It does not come by our power and strength. It comes through the Redeemer who has revealed His arm, the Son, Jesus Christ, to us. And that Redeemer has come from, the, from Zion, from Jerusalem, from the heavenly Zion. He has come. And He has delivered us. So listen, this war we're fighting, this battle that we're a part of as soldiers, is not in doubt. Paul is not writing at the end of this letter, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, Christians in Ephesus, the whole thing is going to fail. It's all on you now. The pressure is on you. The final shot of the big game. The coach is called to play. And you Christians in Ephesus, or you Christians at Grace Fellowship, you're the one taking the three-point shot to win it. No. Christ already took the three-point shot. <clears throat> he won the game. More serious than that, He went to the cross, and He fought the battle of the wrath of God against the evil powers and sin and death in this age, and He won. He won and He ransomed for Himself many people from many nations. And now He has arrayed us in His armor. He has said, don't rely on your strength. The battle is over. The victory is won. Now fight. And you say, why are we fighting if it's over? Some have made a mistake in understanding Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. They have got to come up with this let go and let God theology. You've run into them. That makes a great bumper sticker. It's hogwash. 
It's not worth the paper it's written on. Let go and let God is a fallacy. Nowhere, nowhere, in no place does God say, let go and let me. Everywhere He says, I will do it through you. He gives us commands. Stand. The implication, if you don't stand, you're going to fall. If you fall, you fail. If you fail, you don't persevere. If you don't persevere, you're not mine. Many are being led to hell through a seemingly godly spiritualism. Let go and let God. That is false. If you let go, you will fail. If you fail, you will go to hell. Do not do that. Paul never says that. Paul says, stand. Having done all to stand, stand. Stand firm. Don't back down. Do you not see that? He repeats that four times in this little passage. Stand. 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 It's almost like he's, he's emotionally, he's screaming, he's pleading, he's begging the people of Ephesus. Don't lay down. This is a fight to the end. So why is it a fight to the end if we have a great victor who's won the victory? Now I'm going to use a, a, a modern example, okay? But you could use this in any age. And I don't mean this any political way, okay? So please understand that. But in 2001, a, our, our nation was attacked by terrorists. Everybody knows that. They fired the first shots of a war that goes on today. Wherever you stand on the war. We're not talking about that. Just hear the analogy. They struck at us. They bit our heel. And now, we have crushed their heads. Have we not? In 2003, the United States Army declared victory over the nation of Iraq. Soon after, a few years later, victory in Afghanistan. Our opponents struck at us over 3,000 dead in one day only to have their heads crushed. But are we not still fighting in Iraq? Do you think any soldier over there is told by his commanding officer, we won the war. Lay down your guns. Take off your body armor. Don't ride around in an M1 Abram anymore. You're safe. What do you need a striker vehicle for? They're not going to attack us. No. Everybody over there is being told, stand on guard. Stand. If you lay down, they will take you. If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Stand firm. That's the way I understand what Paul's saying. The war's not in doubt. The overall effort, it's done. It's decisive. It is won at Calvary. Christ is our victor. But if you take off your body armor, the fiery, flaming terrorist will destroy you. Peter calls him a roaring lion. What does a lion do? He seeks his prey. Oh, he doesn't go after those uh, hurts. I, I, I may be sadistic. I like watching big game attack their prey. I just like it. I like the shows about lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. I like alligators. I like to see swamp people when they're wrestling with alligators and saying, shoot them. I like it. My blood boils a little. Okay? 
Listen, that's how Peter understands our adversary. When the lion on the prairie of Africa goes after her game, because men are too lazy to hunt in the lion pride. They lay around, sleep all day. Women have to go get all the food. Isn't that amazing? Backwards, isn't it? But when they go out to hunt, what do they do? They lay down in the weeds. Sometimes not moving but a few inches in an hour. And they're watching the herds. Maybe zebras. Maybe Cape buffalo. It may be any, any of these things. And what is that lion waiting on? He's waiting on small ones to wander, from the, wander away from mamas. Come in striking distance. And what does he do? It's over. She pounces. She goes for the throat. She kills. What's she waiting on? She's waiting on a weak one. A sick one. They can sense sickness, we're told. They're great master hunters, and they wait. And the old and the decrepit and the young are easy prey. They don't go after the... When the, when the Cape Buffaloes realize they get alerted, there's, there's danger. They all circle up. You've seen them around young ones. The lion doesn't attack them. Because why? They're standing. They're alert. They know they're under attack. So if you let go, let God... Don't be shocked when Satan eats your lunch. Don't be shocked when he seeks and destroys your faith. Don't stand down for even a second. That's Paul's command here. So that's the idea in this text. That's the big idea. Stand. Stand. You're under attack. So let's understand this text piece by piece. First in verse 10 we see that our strength is in the Lord. Look at the first word. It says, finally in my translation. Your translation may say, henceforth. What Paul's doing here in this last transition is he's pointing back to all of what he's already written. He's going back and he's saying, look, the doctrine of the sovereign God who has given us every spiritual blessing in His Son, Jesus Christ. You let go of that doctrine for just one minute and you're going to get devoured. You start to play and dabble with mystic and, and wrong theology, even for a second, you're in danger. Stand, he would say. Don't give an inch. In chapter 2, he rotates over. And he says, listen, if you start messing with the doctrine of man, and you start saying man has good inside of him, and we're all basically good, we just need a little correction. You give up the fact that we're totally depraved, you lose salvation. Because you don't think you need to be saved. You think you need medicine to make you feel better. You need to hold on to that doctrine fiercely. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul would say right here, finally, he's referring back to the fact that God has torn down through Jesus Christ in the flesh of His Son the dividing wall between all people, between Jews and Gentiles being the main division, but all people. That dividing wall, that cultural, religious, social barrier has been done away with in Christ. But listen, if you give up even for a second the fight against racism and against pride, which comes from the inside of a sinful man, you will revert back to divided walls. You will see them begin to be erected in your family and in your home and in your churches and in your societies. Finally, stand in the strength of God because if you don't, you'll lose the sovereignty of God. You'll lose the deadness of man. You'll lose the fact that He's united us in Christ. Made us one family. 
You'll lose chapter 4 where he says, walk therefore. Walk in the, in, the, in the fact of the gospel. Play it out daily in your lives practically. You'll lose it. If you give up, if you stand down, if you put your weapon down, you think the fight's over, you're a goner. And most importantly, maybe, and the tightest connection is to what precedes this passage directly. What is just before this passage? Look at it. From Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 6, verse 9, what do we have? <clears throat> the description of a tranquil, loving, godly home. He says, Husbands acting like Christ, loving their wives, laying down their lives, and wives submitting themselves to them, their husbands as unto the Lord, and children following their parents' commands, and parents loving their children, not provoking them, and slaves working as unto Christ, and not unto their masters on the earth, and masters treating the slave like they themselves are slaves to the same Master, Jesus Christ. This brings about peace and prosperity and the spread of the Gospel. All this peace and tranquility might lead us to think the war's over. There's no fight. But anybody who has lived any stretch of time in a home knows the most deadly place, the most dangerous place for you is in your home. Some of you this afternoon will go home from this message and you'll lay down the guard of protection that God has provided for you. You'll let your tongue run wild in gossip, in slander, in anger, in putting and belittling others, putting them down. You're home. Why? Because you feel comfortable there. I'm not, I don't have to fight here. I, I can let my hair down. Some of you will go home this very afternoon, after this sermon, and you'll give in to the spiritual warfare of lust and pornography. You'll hear this sermon, and you'll go right home, and, the, and, and while everybody's taking a nap, you'll pick up your computer, you'll stand down, and the enemy will eat you alive. Listen. There's no mistake that he finishes with this tranquil, gospel-oriented home command and then says, stand strong. If you don't, you will fall. Some of you will go home and in the next few weeks, you'll be in serious discussions about why is it fruitful for us to stay married. You'll give up the fight. You'll just lay down the arms. You'll say it's easier to be at peace than to fight. So it's vitally important that we understand that our strength, where does it come from? Henceforth, from now and forevermore, where does our strength come from? Look what it says, from the Lord. Be strong, not in your power, but in His might, in the strength of His might. Stand in the strength of God's might. Be strong in the Lord. You have not been left to fight a fight by yourself. You have a victor. His name is Christ. He commands His army. And it will be victorious. And the truth is, if you're a Christian in this room today, you will win. Through many bloody battles. And through many sleepless nights. And through twists and turns even. You will arrive safely at the gate of the kingdom of God. But you'll do that by fighting.
Don't ever make the mistake of confusing justification and sanctification. Don't make the mistake. Justification legally happened, radically happened at the cross. And sanctification, the positional sanctification that we enjoy seated in the heavenly places, is a fact. But in the practical living of holiness, it is a daily war without which no one will see God. Do not lay down arms. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your mind. We must stand in the might, the strength of God. Secondly, how do we stand? We put on the whole armor of God. Now some have wrongly thought that this was just a defensive fight. You know, only thing we see here besides the one weapon, the sword, is defensive, it protects, and so they've wrongly thought that 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 means we just kind of stand on ground and just hold our position. And we're constantly under assault. And that is true. But I know no great army that simply stands, but doesn't launch a counteroffensive. And Jesus Christ speaks of His church and His people as not fighting the kingdoms of this world, but fighting for the kingdom in the coming world. Oh, don't misunderstand Jesus. He didn't come to bring a sword to the emperors and rulers in His day. But He came to bring a sword. Don't ever mistake that. And the sword is an offensive weapon. So, it's not just defense we're playing. We're not cowered down in some bunker hoping that we survive. The church is moving. We're putting on the whole armor of God, not just so that we're defending ourselves and our homes, but so we're able to launch the offensive against Satan. We take it to him. We take it to him. We're going to see that in this text. So, we stand in God's strength. How do we do that? By putting on the armor of God. And here's our first use of the word stand. Why do we put on the whole armor of God? Because we have a wily enemy. We have a strong opponent. We have someone who wants to destroy us so much so that he is plotting and planning to do it. Satan does not mistakenly wander about happening up on some unsuspecting enemy and taking him by ambush. He plans. He schemes. He carries out his thoughts and intentions. What we have here, the schemes of the devil, this idea is of the purposes of God being warred against by the purpose of His enemy. The whole first part, we might say, is the purpose of God. But now He comes to the end, the last few verses, and He says, don't worry. Don't make this mistake. There's also the purposes of the evil one. He's alive and active and scheming to accomplish His will. Now, we know in the end He will not. But that shouldn't stop us from standing firm, knowing that our enemy is on the prowl. So, we think about our day-to-day lives. We think about our environment. And our environment is off to the wrong footing already, isn't it? I bet if we took a blind pole of even this congregation, we would find that most of us live every day as if the universe is a closed system. That means that everything that exists, exists in our visual parameter. We can see it. 
That's the materialistic heartbeat of our society this day and time. Every enemy you have is a physical enemy. I want to give you an example, a very practical example. Some of you have been fighting against lust and pornography for years. Okay? Some of you have. That's a real fight. And you've shown that you've miscalculated what you're fighting by the guards you take to stop it. The only thing you do is try to cut off the physical stimuli that you see. The physical things that you can see. But I want to tell you, you will never win the fight that way. You won't. Should you take stance against that? Absolutely. But if you stop there, you fail. Because while you can put covenant eyes, and I, I agree, you should, on your computer, on your personal computer, men, we got pamphlets right there in the back. Pick up a pamphlet, put covenant eyes on your computer. It's worth the seven, eight bucks a month, whatever it is. It will personally hold you accountable for your usage. Women, it's, it's available for you also. But you'll never win there. You know why? Because there's no covenant eyes for your eyes when you're on the street. And there's no covenant eyes for your bedroom when you close your eyes at night and you pull up thoughts which you've stored away for years and you fantasize on those thoughts. You're not fighting a physical, a merely physical war, men. That's why so many of us are losing. You're fighting a spiritual war. Do you think that it's like a rabbit trail that it just pops up? That, 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 you just, that these temptations just come from chance? No. They come not just from our flesh, but from against the evil one who is against us and is seeking to destroy us. Now that's just one area of sin. It's a very easy one to talk about. And it's because it's something that I think all of us experience and know the fight that we're having. But I could do it with the lust for things, materialism, the pride of life. I could, you know, the, the desire for success and accomplishment. We could go on and on. It's not a physical fight only. Yes, it's a physical fight, but it is a spiritual war. I had a conversation some years ago with an older man approaching his 80s. We were talking about this fight for holiness. And he said, the most disturbing thing for me is not that I'm tempted every now and then by a young woman who walks by, but rather that I can't remember what happened yesterday, but I can remember what I saw when I was 18 like it was yesterday. And those thoughts come from nowhere. I'm not sitting around plotting to think that way. It just They're there. I'm going about my day almost 80, and it just comes to my mind. And the fight's on. Listen, we fight an enemy who's scheming. He's wise. And we've not always lived in a society that thought that everything was physical. Unless we forget, if you go back to Jesus' day, they sometimes over-spiritualized everything. Then we had Augustine in the three, four hundreds of the church writing about the war between the cities of God and the city of man. And then we had Martin Luther who said that when he stand, stands to preach, he knows both angels and demons array themselves against him. 
We've not always lived in the thought that everything was physical, everything was material. That began to happen in the modern era. But yet even in the modern era, we're blessed with great men, great thinkers like C.S. Lewis, who wrote screw tape letters for us. I would encourage you, get that little book. Read it. It will awaken you to the schemes of the evil one. In his trademark way, he takes a story between an uncle and a nephew demon and how they attack simple men in England, in London, and keep them diverted from godly tasks. Now, lest you think C.S. Lewis was some novice, this was one of the greatest minds in his day. He was an atheist who was converted to Christ. He was a great thinker, well-respected. It's not always been that we thought the universe was closed. That's kind of a modern idea. And not even today are we locked to thinking this. Not even today. Great minds today agree that there is an existence of some powers beyond what we can see. Even secularists talk of it. It's interesting to me. I grew up in an environment like most of you where everything and everyone assumed there was God and there was the devil. Well, did you grow up there? That's how I grew up. Oh, no. I'm getting a lot of head nods. The first time I met anybody that, was, that believed there was nothing beyond the physical was at college. One of the most brilliant historians I've ever been around, we vacationed with them in our latter college years. Sitting in New Mexico at his vacation home, he told me late one night, I don't understand you. You talk like there's things beyond this world. I don't get it. And, and I was crushed. He, oh, I dealt with rank pagans. But even most rank pagans in the South believed there was something beyond what they could see. They talked about God. They talked about evil. They talked about even demons and Satan. But here this brilliant man was, and he said, I, there's nothing beyond. This is closed. This is it. When you die, it's over. I was shocked. I was shocked. What led him away, and I want to be careful, the word devil is here. And when I say that, most people would be tempted to think about the little man with a red suit on, pitchfork, tail, horns, the Greek mythology idea comes. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Satan doesn't array himself even as a demon. We're told he arrays himself as a messenger of the light. More often than not, you will not recognize him, nor his power, nor his schemes. They will come to you as good common sense. They will come to you as mere distraction, nothing more. They will come to you as idle thoughts, not as some grand scheme to take over the world. He comes to you as a harmless dove often. Proverbs even paints him as a lustful woman. Don't go down her path. She seeks to eat you alive. That opponent, that's who we're talking about. Not the little red man with a pitchfork, but the agent who disguises himself in light. He looks good on the outside, and in the end, his way is death. That's who we're fighting against. We're standing in Christ. We're commanded to put on the armor of God. That's the way we stand against the devil. And we see in verse 12, as we close out this morning, we see that he 
has an array of forces. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That word we wrestle means hand-to-hand combat. The idea is not some distant war that we're fighting, but rather that the evil one is after us and he is even on us and it will take our very strength, everything in us to engage in this warfare. This isn't a part-time, this is a full-time job. He's seeking to devour you hand-to-hand in combat. If you relax, if you recline, he wins. That's the idea of wrestling. We're wrestling against these powers. Now, some believe and, and um, may be right here. I don't agree with them, but some believe that rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces talk to us about a pyramid, a structured pyramid of evil things. Spirits, okay? The first clue that they may not be right is, and that they're not basing it purely on the grammar, is that some people believe rulers are at the top and spiritual powers at the bottom. They're the menial demons that run around on the earth. And rulers would be second in command to Satan himself, okay? The pyramid goes that way. But for many others, the pyramid is reversed. Rulers are the mere base demons that run around the earth And the spiritual powers are the second in command. So when you start seeing that kind of disagreement, you know there's no solid solid format here. Something could be behind this. I think the something that's behind it is that it's not a pyramid at all. But rather it's the way Paul describes the different types of attacks we face and the different ones who carry them out. Follow me here. And other... Uh, commentaries will point you this way. And this is the way I understand verse 12. We wrestle against not flesh and blood. Our fight is not against the people of this world, but against rulers. Now rulers is the thought of region. When you think of a ruler, you think of a king, a region, geographic area. We know for a fact that some geographic areas are more tolerant than others when it comes to the gospel. Some are actively against the gospel. We have missionaries who go into Papua New Guinea, and there are headhunters there. For centuries, they have been cutting off the head of missionaries. They have been boiling them and eating them. When the second wave of missionaries arrived after Chalmers went there, they were still eating the soles of the shoes of the men who came with Thomas Chalmers. They couldn't digest it, but they were trying to eat it. That's how violent and how hated the gospel is in that particular area. And we know there are places like that all over the globe. Why? Because there are rulers over those areas which are yet to be kicked off their thrones, in a sense. The gospel has not dethroned them. But in the United States, though there is opposition, and we're going to see some of that later in this text, there's not, per se, a a hatred to the gospel as much as there is an intolerance of the gospel. People don't like the gospel here that much. People believe false gospels all the time and are confused about what they believe about the gospel. But we're not getting our heads cut off. When we think about rulers, we think about those who rule over territory. They're spirits who rule over certain, even geographic areas. 
It's to these that Jesus says, I believe, until all those nations hear the gospel, the end doesn't come. In other words, one of the signs of the end is that the gospel penetrates places like Papua New Guinea. And there are believers being had in those islands and in those places that will surround the throne of God. So first we see that where our fight is against rulers. Another type of attack that we face is from a group of authority. Now, authority is similar but not the same as ruler. Authority deals with the way we think. The power over Thinking, the power over what we value, excuse me, the power over what we value in this world. So the authority, unlike the geographic areas, is more diversified. The attack is global. What do we value? This is something here in the States we face often. We face it often. It's widespread. Our value systems are under attack. Third, we see that we go against the cosmic powers of this age. The those who are in the top 1% of our society, one of the saddest truths is that since the early 1900s, the United States of America's highest institutions of learning have been overrun by liberals. You know why? Because the once godly people who sat in chairs of history and economics and theology at places like Princeton and Yale quit. Nobody fired them. Not at the beginning. They quit. They walked away because there was a fight going on in those institutions. And so instead of staying and fighting, they went and started their own institutions. In the fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s, they left the fight and started their own places of education. In a sense, they handed over to the cosmic powers of this age the thinking of our society. This country is not ruled by us. Don't let anybody fool you. This country is not ruled by the people who sit in the House of Representatives, the Senate, nor the House, nor the White House in the Oval Office. This country is ruled by the top 1% who make up the think engine, the think tanks, who churn out the policies. And guess what? In the United States, we gave that up. In Europe, we gave that up. Christians walked away from those cosmic powers, took over those places, and now they're hardened against Christian truth. Generations, two generations removed, there's a hardness against it. It's mocked and ridiculed. You can't get a job in those places many times as a Christian. Why did it happen though? Make no mistake, we didn't stand. We laid down our warfare and we walked away. I can't think, but that if had we fought the fight, we may still have those, or at least a representation within those, within those places, those centers of thinking. So, geographic areas and value systems are under attack, and ways of thinking are under attack, and finally, the spiritual forces of the evil one are the spiritually destructive myths and mythologies that float and are caught carte blanche as truth. Whether it be Islamic, Buddhist, Eastern mysticism, New Age theology, whatever it is, these things also have been handed over. And these spiritual powers that we're in fight, supposed to be fighting against, are seeking to take these fully over, take us captive. So, we see this text, and we're going to be here even longer 
in the weeks to come. We're going to pick up in verse 13. We see that we're to stand in the strength of the Lord, put on the armor of God. We have a real and present enemy, the devil, who also has minions, legions of people taking over, trying to take over the value systems, the geographic territories, the thinking, and the general spiritual religious institutions of our day. That's what they're fighting. It's happening all around us. But in closing, I want to show a ray of hope from the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 1, there's a connection, I think, though it's distant, to our passage. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, listen to what God tells Joshua. Now remember, they're standing at the edge, the border, the river of the promised land. Their great leader has died. Joshua has been installed as the next leader. See if you don't see the commonality here. Verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law of Moses, my servant commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The response of Joshua is our response today. It should be. It says that he passed through the midst, verse 11, of the camp and commanded the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you as your possession. Now, this is a real event that happened in the history of Israel, but let me tell you why we have it. It would be insignificant. Except for the fact that this is exactly what we're being told by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. Notice the, the, notice the interchange. What is he telling him? Be strong. What does Paul tell us? Stand strong in the strength of who? The Lord. Who's going to go with you, Joshua? The Lord is going to go with you. Now, he's talking about a physical war here. Don't forget that. In Joshua 1, he's talking about a physical war, is he not? This is physical land, physical enemies. You need real weapons of warfare, right? And they had real weapons of warfare. But what does the writer, what, did, what does the writer tell us that God told him would be his number one weapon, his real weapon, the law that I commanded you from my servant Moses. If you don't turn from it to the right or to the left, I'll give you what I promised. Stand is what he's being told, on the promises and the Word of God, and I will deliver you against all your enemies, Joshua. And what, how are we told they conquer the land? If you read the whole book of Joshua, what you find is this amazing story of the, ex, of the exploits of the nation of Israel. They go in immediately, they find success, they conquer Jericho in a weird battle tactic, right? Marching around, blowing trumpets and all this thing. And the walls collapse and they conquer the, one of the greatest cities in, the ancient, in that part of the ancient world. They took it down. It was amazing. They become prideful. They lay down their guard. And God says, don't take anything. Do not take anything. Those things are holy and dedicated to Me. What happens? 
they don't stand on the Word of God. One member of the camp takes from the treasury, hides it in his tent. They go against this little peon place, Ai. Little bitty place. This ain't nothing. We don't even have to send the whole army for these people. This will be nothing. And they get routed by this little peon's people. Why? Because they weren't standing on God's Word. Because they had not taken up the spiritual weapons that were necessary to win the war they were fighting. The, the, the whole Psalms tell us that God won the war for the promised land with what? With swords and chariots and kings and powerful men, right? No. How did God win the war in the promised land? He drove them out with bees and hornets. God defeated the people of Israel, its enemies, through a spiritual act. He made them afraid. He persecuted them on behalf of Israel. And Israel is seen not to be some great army, but a peon army winning great exploits because of God, not because of them. Now, how does that apply to Ephesians 6? Do I need to be that obvious to you? You're a peon. I'm a peon. Grace Fellowship is a peon. We can't win any war on our own. If we think we're going to take even Ai, the spiritual equivalent, with our own strength, we will get routed. You can't whip a dead computer sitting on your desk with nothing but a mouse click. You can't even win that war on your own strength. So you really think you're going to take on the powers and authorities of this present age? Absolutely not. They're more like the fortified cities of Jericho, but listen to what you can do. You can array yourself with the armor of God and you can stand on the truth of God and you can whip the computer and the spiritual powers of this age because God will whip them for you. It is the interchange between you and God that will win this war in your life. Never, never let go and let God hold on to the truth of the Gospel and Christ in that truth and you can and will defeat every enemy. It's a promise. Just like in Joshua 24, Joshua the old man says, you now possess all that God promised your forefathers. God will say to you one day, Christian, you now have defeated your final enemy. Take your rest. You're at home. But don't rest until that day. Let's pray.